At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, let's talk a little healthcare policy. And this is one of our go-tos for it. She's really bright. We love talking to her. I actually got to meet her back over the Christmas break, which is really nice. Elise Omidro, happy to have you back on the program, ma'am. Welcome back. Thank you so much, Andrew. I'm glad to be back. Thrilled to have you. Uh, you've been doing a lot of writing about this, but I want let's let's. I always like to start with the core problem before we get into the specifics. It's the terminology, government healthcare. Why do we have this cognitive dissonance that if we put those two words together, all the problems that are inherent to healthcare, whatever system you use, magically go away, and all the problems that are inherent to government magically go away? But if we put those two words together, it's this magical thing that works perfectly, but it doesn't. But that's how a lot of people seem to treat it. Why is that? I wish I could tell you exactly why. I think there are just many misconceptions about how we access healthcare, and that's why we think that you know if the government gets involved, it's just, just going to make it all equal for everybody. The only way to make something equally accessible is the government providing it. But as you know, uh, as you and I know, uh, getting a, access to the DMV, for instance, is not something that we enjoy, and that's because the government is in charge of running it. Why we insist that the government take care of our healthcare is a great question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why this is um, such a big focus, but here we are. Yeah, and part of it too is though, you can have very good government-run healthcare. That many countries have very good government, but there's trade-offs involved with it. It's different. You can have really good privatized healthcare, but there's trade-offs involved. Why do we not just seem to be able to have a, a conversation of like, look, there's there's good and bad to both. There's trade-offs to both. How do we get into that conversation? Because that's where you actually get from just, you know, pie in the sky policy and writing a paper or writing a piece to the nitty gritty of this stuff. But that seems to be the point of demarcation of just being honest about some of this stuff. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I have to find, you know, I, I struggle to find examples of great government run healthcare anywhere around the world. And truly, you know, the U.S. gets accused of being the one private, private, um, healthcare system in the world and that's not true either right we have a lot of government spending on healthcare so um but you know one distinction that's really important to make is really what we mean when we talk about government healthcare um what we when we say single payer healthcare systems what we actually mean is when the government collects taxes and it gives healthcare to everybody for free at the point of service right this is the single payer model and the UK has that system Sweden has it Canada several others. And then on the other end, we have a system called the Bismarck system. And that one is actually more so based on private actors, like private insurance companies, private providers, and they collect money uh, with the help of the government, but they really provide those services on a private basis. And those systems actually tend to do a lot better 
So when we talk about government-run healthcare systems, we need to know what we're talking about. Is it single-payer or is it another more market-based system? And as we can see right now with the crisis, um, especially during the pandemic and the wake of it, we see that single-payer systems are the ones that fare the worst currently. Yeah, Elise Amidral joining us. You just mentioned Bismarck. Let's back up because I'm sure a lot of people, I didn't know some of this reading your piece and reason. We're going to link to it and everybody should go read the full piece. The history of this stuff, the idea of a healthcare system, if you want to call it a system, government run healthcare, whatever, this is a pretty new idea in its current form. 1880s, the Bismarck model. Just walk folks through that because there's two really important things happened here. Of course, the Bismarck model in 1880. And then the 1940s and the 50s, the NHS in um, England, and then, of course, what we call the baby bloom explosion, the post-war era in America, where healthcare here started becoming tied to your job. Those are kind of the three important spots to how we got to modern healthcare, at least in the West, right? So this is true. And this is when we talk about paying for healthcare. What's important to remember is why we needed those systems in the first place. That was your question. Well, until you know, very recently, we didn't have great medicine. You know, people could call themselves doctors, and they, they had some training, but we kind of lacked the the real impact that medicine has today. Modern medicine is why, really, we have this need for some sort of regulation and uh, you know a way of paying for this more expensive care for those highly trained people. And so Otto von Bismarck, who's a German um, politician, he came up with the system um, to to um, enable people to pay for this care that was so expensive. Um, that was the system that I described earlier that's more market-based, where uh, the government is involved in collecting the, the money, making sure, sometimes through an individual mandate, um, to make sure that people have some sort of coverage, but it is provided through private actors, uh, private insurance companies, and private hospitals. Those people are not employed by the government. In the 40s, what we have in the UK is Lord um, Beveridge, who, um, who designed this uh, system for the, uh, the National Health System Service in, in the UK, what he had in mind is, well, look, during the, during the war, everyone had universal access to emergency services. Why not make this available to everybody in the UK for all healthcare services? And the people who pushed back at the time the most were actually doctors. And doctors were like, we don't want to be employed by the government. We want to you know, have our own... Um, our own uh, employment that's not provided by the government. And the way he went around that, the way the, the way the government went around that was simply to give doctors a lot more money than they had, um, you know, than they had hoped for. And so by giving them a lot of funding, um, the doctors were um, fine with this national health service. And this brings us back to today where actually the money has not followed as it's not nearly as good as it was back, back in the days and so doctors today are not paid enough and they don't want to stay in the system. They actually want to exit it. Yeah, at least Amidra is joining us. That's part of what's going on with the American model right now where doctors are very well paid privately. Look, I'm a, I'm a VA patient. I get my health care through the VA system. One of the biggest problems the VA got, I, I've literally had a conversation with doctors where they're like, you know, they're like, I can't go to the VA. You know, their, their starting salary is my bonus check. For the year like they just they do not pay the doctors so you do not get those top level doctors you get some because they see it as a calling and whatever i don't want to knock all of them this is just part of inherency into the system especially the, the american system you just walk through the history of like the nhs and how they got there america has for good bad or indifferent 
probably more of a mix of both than a lot of people. But that also brings inherent problems to how we do healthcare, and that's the crisis that we have, and that's the fight with it because some folks have one thing, some folks have the other. And then you have in all healthcare systems, the people that don't have access to anything, what do you do with that, which almost has to be a government-type option. That's kind of the core of the whole thing, isn't it? Yeah, and that's where I think, you know, free market advocates should be clear. There are people out there who really need help because their their services are going to be too expensive and they simply don't have the money for it. This is why we have Medicaid, right? So if we look at our own history, um, like you mentioned earlier, it the um, healthcare insurance in the U.S. is tied to your employment for the most part. So that's something that came up in the in the 40s during the war. Um, employers were not allowed to to compensate their employees more. They, they were wage freezes. So instead, um, employee, employers started to give insurance to their employees as a benefit, as a way of compensating and attracting that workforce. And in the after the war ended, um, the, RI, the IRS was able to make that permanent. So uh, meaning the, the, the tax exemption that uh, employers get for giving um, uh, insurance benefits to employees. And so this is how we built a model that is rooted in employment. Now, 20 years later, people started to retire and they said, well, where's my healthcare that I'm no longer employed, I need to find some sort of coverage. So that's when we um, created Medicare um, for the elderly. So that's the insurance for the elderly people 65 and over. And we also have Medicaid, which is for people who are low income or are very sick. And that's all good and fine, except that today, one in four Americans is on Medicaid. So this has become a huge program that is not at all just for people who are very sick or very poor. It, is, it has expanded to a whole host of Americans who could actually rely on better coverage that is not government provided. But like you said earlier, we have a system that is now um, primarily government funded for you know a fourth of a quarter of the population right now. And that's a problem because Medicaid doctors don't get paid as much and access is not as good because there are too many people in the program. So we are in, at risk of copying um, the issues that we see in other countries like the UK by creating our own little mini single payer system in the US. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.
Yeah, a Leomi draw. Look, healthcare policy is one of the most complicated policy things we have because healthcare is complicated. The business of healthcare is really complicated. The government regulation, and plus there's the medicine angle on its life and death. It's a big, ugly ball. But the Medicaid part of it is probably the easiest way to explain it in, a, in kind of a healthy bike. Look, Medicaid is extremely popular. Every time they put it on a ballot, everybody votes for it. Everybody loves Medicaid. In its on paper, perfect platform, it's a really good program. It gives people kind of the best of both. It's got some pros and cons to it. You just mentioned it, though, for folks that don't realize. Medicaid has this downside to it where we have, especially rurally inner cities, places like this, hospitals are closing because they live and die on these Medicare payments and they're just not enough. Doctors don't want to take them because it's not enough. And policy-wise, and this is really dumbing it down, but basically it's becoming a thing where the government has to make people take Medicare payments that are below what they can afford to take because all the government can do is blunt force trauma. I know that's really, really simplified, but that's probably the best way for folks to get their mind around how something, even though it's good, is creating more of a problem the longer you let it go without reform. Is that an easy way to explain it? It is. You know, the government sets the rates. The government decides how much they're going to pay doctors and how much they're going to pay for each service that they provide. And it's on doctors to decide, well, do I like that payment? Do I think it's do I think my time is worth this amount that the government's going to reimburse me? Or do I not like it? And in that case, what do I do? So we have a growing number of doctors who are quitting, right? They're exiting the system. It's good for them and it's good for patients because it means that they have more autonomy and they can charge what they think is is you know the worth of their services and patients are also um, able to pay for that you know knowing that they're really going to be taken care of um what we should resist though is making it an even bigger like bigger system when you talk about medicare and medicaid um it's not a good idea to put more people on it because it's already bloated and doctors are already um you know exiting the system so the more people we put on it the more they're reliant on the system and then we still have the shortages and as you you and i know there are shortages of healthcare providers here and around the world like there are just not enough healthcare providers so what are we going to do are we going to make it even harder for them to work like that's only going to make it worse so we need to be very careful when we expand those those programs because we actually are precipitating you know a, a crisis in terms of healthcare access yeah, Elise, let me draw. You pointed out in your writing, our friends to the north are really feeling this problem. Like, look, we we already mentioned it. Part of the healthcare policy problem is everybody gets sick. Every human being gets sick. Every human being dies. Not everybody has the same ability to take care of themselves. There's always going to be a group of people that cannot take care of themselves. What do we do with them? Our friends to the north really have an acute problem with this. They have more towards the NHS style than the American style, although it's a little different. They've actually been in Toronto. They're talking about doing a little bit of limited privatization. It's causing a big, big fight up there. But our friends to the north, this is really where their rubber's hitting the road is. What do we do with these sick people when there just ain't enough? Even if you streamlined it, even if you make it all free, there's just not enough providers and there's not enough service. Right. Well, and... And you know what they do, right? It's it's really morbid, but the government is now paying for physician-assisted suicide in Canada. And when I put that in my piece as I was writing it, my editor challenged me and said, are you sure that they're explicitly saving money by by helping people you know, kill themselves through this program? And I was like, oh, you know, I don't know. I, I need to double check. And sure enough, I found a study by the Canadian 
medical association, so the equivalent of the American Medical Association in Canada, um, that said that this suicide program would help Canada save over $136 billion every year. So they're very proud of the fact that assisted suicide is going to save the government money. And that is not something that we want to import here. We do not want the government to be more involved so that we can have easier access to you know, suicide services. This is horrendous to many Americans, and I think it would not be well accepted at all. We, are, we need to really combat this. This is not at all what the healthcare system should be. It should be about healing people, not killing them. Yeah, at least Ami draws. It brings up something, and assisted suicide is its own malaise because they're look that's a complicated conversation because somebody that's like you know end of life terminal cancer patient or dementia or something like that that's a whole different beast than somebody in their 30s or 40s or something like that that's a different thing but it comes to a problem that canada has canada is a country of 38 million people there's a math problem involved here america has 330 million and counting we talked about the va system the va is the second largest department of the united states government if you don't count the post office and it takes that much government to take care of about 9 million patients of 15 million veterans. That's a really bad math ratio of cost to care, even under the best of circumstances. That's 9 million people, not 330 million. Canada can't make it work with 38 million. The UK's having trouble with something around, you know, nine to 12 million, depending on your numbers. There's some real math involved here that there's just no way to get around in there. Yeah, uh, the way, you know, <laughs> I, I hate to even like imagine what it would be like to install a single payer system in the US for the entire country. But uh, you, you talk about eliminating private everything in healthcare, private doctors, private, you know, pharmaceutical companies, you just get rid of all of that. And there's no way the government can price this correctly. We've seen it everywhere else. No one has been able to price the services correctly. The UK has currently, you know, one in eight British person, current running eight British people is on um, is on a wait list for healthcare at the moment. People are dying as they are waiting in ambulances outside the hospital because there are not enough beds in those hospitals because people are staying in those beds because they have nowhere to be released to. It, it, this is a, a problem that kind of ripples into the entire system. If you get one thing wrong, you get everything um, you know to have to have problems and. Uh, I can kind of see how this could become a bigger problem here if we let it, you know, if we let it become the law of the land to have some sort of government-run uh, healthcare system. Yeah, Ali Amidra is joining us. You were also writing about the UK. Let's talk about them because they do have, you know, closed ain't the right word, but for lack of a better way, they got a closed system. There's, there's just the NHS. That's all they're supposed to be. You know, Richie Sunak, prime minister, got himself into a little bit of trouble because and you opened your your reason piece with it about, you know, the NHS is the closest thing to a national religion. The UK has. We're saying that as a joke. But this situation with Richie Sunak, where he admitted he he just got private care sometime previous and it becomes a scandal because you can't even think about going outside the system. Now, he's a man of immense wealth. Um, he went to school in the U.S. He's been all over the world, obviously. So he has the means to do it. But that's the point. No matter how closed your system is, you're going to have the haves and the have-nots, and the haves are going to figure out a way around these things. That's got to be part of the conversation as well, doesn't it? Yeah, there's a, a mentality that just isn't present in the U.S. As much as we talk about Medicare for All, um, we don't have this, you know, we, we do appreciate private enterprise. In the U.K., like you said, it's the opposite. Like pe People were shocked. The tabloids were writing all about how the prime minister dared use a private doctor, as if that was a crime. Um, 
they just don't like it. They don't like the idea of having a private system. But this is really um, different here, thankfully. And uh, yeah, so we see very clearly in the mentality as well. And I, I think that's what sets us apart. Like we don't, we don't actually want to go towards a system like theirs. Um, and like you said, th there's no, um, there's no true equ equality in those systems. Like we have Sweden, for instance, where um, it's seen as the one of the most egalitarian countries in the world, and yet there are still differences in how fast people can access care. And we see that too in Canada, actually. People who are the wealthiest uh, Canadians are still able to access care faster than low-income Canadians, even if they're on the same healthcare system. They just have connections, they know doctors, you know, they're family friends, they're able to access the services that they need. So there's no amount of regulation and laws that can make the system completely equal. The best equalizer is to have competition and people you know, vying for the attention of, of consumers and patients who actually value um, you know, having the options to shop for the best possible care. Here you go again. People talk about the Nordic model. You wrote about it. They have kind of a parallel system, for lack of a better way to put it. But here you go again. Sweden has 10 million people. It's a very, you know, uh, specific culture. Denmark, Finland, Norway, those all have five to six million people, give or take. America's got 330 million. And we've got a big, diverse economy and society, and it's a pluralistic society. Is it too much of a simplification? Because you're way smarter than this on me. So explain it to me like I'm five. Most complicated issues like this, I just start defaulting to, hey, this needs to be more of an all of the above than funneling into one specific answer when we look for a solution here. Is there some way for a coexistence of both a private and a government option? Because it seems to me like what's going to be best here is to have a little bit of an all of the above mentality to it. Is that oversimplifying or is that what something we should be working towards? Well, that's a it's a good question. Again, going back to the people who will genuinely need assistance from the government, right? I mean, you can even debate whether it should come from the government, but someone who's um, paralyzed and cannot, you know, work or earn their own money and will have expensive care needs, that person needs, you know, in, in a society like ours, we don't want that person to be like, well, too bad, right? Like, <laughs> we're just gonna like let you not have any care. Obviously, we want them to have care, but. So this government option is going to always uh, be present, but it should be limited to those people who can't, quote unquote, help themselves, right? Who can't um, take care of themselves. And um, it's actually something that we should take pride in when we can buy our own healthcare insurance, when we can uh, access the services that really meet our needs. And so, yes, it, it will be all of the above, but I think we should always prefer, or at least have a preference for a system where doctors can practice on their own terms patients have access to the doctors that they like and they can buy the treatments that work for them. And this works best when the government is less involved in the provision of, of care and payment for care. Yeah, Elise Amidro. Again, this is a tough subject. So let's start back where we started with this thing. How do we have better conversations about this? Because there's a lot of policy, there's a lot of posing, that something like Medicare, politically fraught. Like there's only one way that's going to go when you get the politics involved, right? 
everybody wants to take care of the poor and the disabled and the folks that need help. Everybody just as human beings wants to help them. And then we got to debate it. How do we talk about this better? Because it seems like there's a big disconnect between the policy folks, the government folks that actually run it, the healthcare folks that actually run the private healthcare systems and the hospital systems. It's almost like they're all speaking different languages. How do we discuss this better? Because it's really going to start there before we actually start getting stuff on paper or in regulation or in laws, right? Great question. What I like about healthcare policy is that I'm actually convinced that people on all sides of the issue have almost perfect agreement on what they want. They want a healthcare system where everyone has access to healthcare in a timely fashion. The healthcare needs to be high quality and it's to be and it needs to be affordable. I think everyone agrees on that. On you know on the right, on the left, you, you name it. So realizing that we have a similar purpose and goal is helpful as a basis. Then the question is how do we attain that goal? And there it's important to ask well, if you like this system, or if you like this program, if you like this model from a different country, why is that? Why, what is it about it that you like? And, and I think we, we should not be afraid of asking tough questions. I think it's, there's no uh, point in being tribal about those things, right? Like I was telling you, I think you know, some free market people will completely um, discount the value of any you know, government involvement in healthcare. But I would also challenge them on why, you know, like what are you gonna do about those people who really need some assistance? We, we should we should think about those things in more nuanced terms, like as always. Um, but I think it starts really by re recognizing that we have very similar goals and then discussing the merit of each option based on what we know and based on the evidence, not just on the principles that we might have or even the um, the theories that we have about how to improve the system. Yeah, at least Ami draws. Here's the tough question under all this that I don't think people really talk about, though. We talk about politics like, oh, this is life and death or this is generational change. Healthcare policy really is life and death. Do we need to do a little better job of just acknowledging that it's like, look, more than almost any other policy, this really does have life and death implications. This is people's lives. This is people's family members, loved ones. They them Again, every single one of us are going to die and get sick at some point. It's going to happen. This is one policy where it really does affect absolutely everyone. There's got to be a little honesty in that as well, doesn't there? That, yeah, this one really is life and death. It's not just hyperbole. True. However, um, especially people who want, you know, who think they have a solution that's ready made to solve that issue will be very quick to say, people are going to die. If we don't expend Medicaid in, in my state, people are going to die. Okay, well, that's, that's a, a shortcut there. You, what, what about Medicaid saves lives? There is almost no evidence. Actually, there is no evidence right now that Medicaid saves lives. Um, so we want to just realize, yes, saving lives is important. And like you said, this is, in my view, the most important issue where uh, we can deal with in terms of, of public policy. It is something that everybody needs. And also it's a very costly item. It's almost 20% of our, of our GDP that goes to healthcare. So we should be spending that money wisely in ways that really help us. But it's not a good way to, like, it's not um, the, 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 the urgency um, that people have about saving lives should not be immediately equated with uh, their preferred solution that may or may not work. Yeah. And on the flip side of the, this is a life or death issue, this is rapidly becoming, and if you loop it into government benefits, especially in America, places like the UK, this is almost the government financial issue. It is by far going to be the most expensive thing that most governments deal with, especially if you loop it into entitlements, which you almost have to. There you go again, you know, the hyperbole and the weapon of life and death. 
this really is going to be probably the biggest part of our government going forward. And we have to discuss it in that way as well. Yes, <laughs> currently the the Congress Congress is debating what to do with our debt and our debt limit uh, the ceiling. Well, eighty four percent of the growth of govern of government debt right now is attributable to yes social security and interest payments, but also Medicare and Medicaid. Those four things together make up the bulk of the growth of our debt. And if we don't get that spending under control, we will be in a financial situation that we simply cannot sustain. And um, so that's that's the tough conversation that we absolutely need to have. We want Medicare, we want Medicaid, but they're not sustainable. What are we going to do about that? How are we going to make the program deliver good care and not just line the pockets of middlemen in between who are able to milk the system as it currently is? Those are conversations where we can really get bring people together who are just taxpayers who want to have their money well spent and for patients who want to see quality care without the waste and, and the issues that we have currently in the system. Yeah. Elise Ami draws, these are tough issues. There's not always a good, clean answer. That's why we get her on to explain it. And we always love talking to her. She's so good at it. We don't even hold it against her that she went to Duke. Uh, but she is involved with some other stuff. And in addition to all her policy stuff she does in her writing, she's working with Health Reformers Academy. Let folks know what that is, what you're doing, how they can follow you, how they can keep up with you till we get you back on her tell again, my friend. Yeah, the Health Reformers Academy is a new program for um, right of center health policy people who are looking to uh, build camaraderie among um, other health policy people and um, advance useful reforms that will actually deliver better care. So check it out. And people can follow me on LinkedIn. My name is Elise Amedro, E-L-I-S-E, and then my last name, A-M-E-Z, space D-R-O-Z. So you can follow me there. Yeah, we appreciate you greatly. Another one of our great Young Voices contributors. We've had her on a bunch. We're going to keep having her on because, like we said, this is going to be one of the major issues in perpetuity. We all get sick. We all die. And we all got a government's got to try to figure out what to do about it. Elise Omidraw, you are the best. We appreciate you so much, my friend. Thank you for the time today. Thanks so much, Andrew. Yes, ma'am. Welcome back to Hertel. All right. He is the most appeared person in the history of this program. He's got his own best of Hertel now because he's done that much good work. He is fabulous from the stars to the ground and everything in between. Dr. Michael Siegel, great having you back on the program, my friend. How are you? Great to be here, Andrew. All right. For those on the YouTube, what's the star field we're looking at? Because I always get these nebulas and star fields and constellations all jacked up. So what one is this one? This is the, uh, I haven't changed it actually since last time. This is the field that JDOSC looked at where they discovered uh, ISIS forming in uh, newly born stars. That's sexy science stuff right there. There's mm -hmm. ice in the stars. Let's start terrestrially because something that I thought was on ice has now exploded back into the news cycle. Something that I thought was on ice has exploded back into the news cycle. Uh, the COVID lab leak theory, we're still kind of calling it. Let me just lay out where I'm at on it after three years because for folks that aren't familiar with you, at Ordinary Times, you've been our go-to guy on COVID because one, you're a scientist. Two is you actually have members in your household to work on things like vaccines. So you have a lot of working knowledge of this stuff and you can break down things so that even I can understand it. So you've been covering COVID for a while. 
We've talked about the lab leak thing since the early days of this. We've talked about it all the way through. We talked about it a couple of months ago. Here we are. It's back again. Let me just lay out where I'm at on it as a non-scientific outside observer. I think the theory that this came out of a lab, it's credible. I don't know if it's true. I don't think we'll ever know it's true. I think it's probably the most reasonable explanation if you just break everything down as far as possible to how this thing got out. But because of the communist Chinese regime and the way they control information, I don't think we'll ever know for sure. So therefore, I'm not going to go to the mat and fight anybody to the death over this one way or the other. But one way or the other, China was responsible for this virus to come out. That's just how I see it. How do you see it, sir? I see it somewhat similarly, but I would uh, <clears throat> disagree a little bit on the more likely scenario. So what has happened this week is that there are eight federal agencies that have looked into the origins of the, of the coronavirus. Uh, one of them, the FBI, has already said that they believe that it came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Uh, the other this week, the DOE said, although they did not disclose what evidence they had to change their opinion, that they have a low confidence uh, theory that it did uh, come out of the Wuhan lab. Now, people have been making fun of that a little bit. You know, low confidence means low confidence. When we have a scientific conclusion, we state how certain we are of those results. It's rare that you're 100%. Sometimes you're 99%, sometimes you're 97%. In this case, they didn't state a percentage, but they said low confidence. In other words, I would guess what they're saying is they think it's a little more likely that it came from the lab than that it came from the wet market. Uh, so, but there's another six federal agencies that disagree with this. Now, one of the people who has been in the front lines of this is Dr. Angela Rasmussen. She is a very active Twitter user and has done the research on this and so forth. She wrote a thread in response to this saying, you know, look, we wrote a paper a year ago looking at the genetics of this virus. It does not show any kind of enhancement or gain of function or anything like that. You, you know, when you're talking about the outbreak, you still have to explain why it out, the outbreak was epicentered on the Wuhan market, which is eight miles and across a river from the Institute of Virology. And uh, actually took a little while to break out uh, because we had people sick uh, off and on. Uh, but I do agree with you that we may never know for sure. Even if China were completely 100% transparent, you may never know for sure. It may be that they had a wild type virus at Wuhan. Someone there got infected, went to the wet market and so forth. But the wet market is where we had identified the, this potential risk. And so one of the things that's very difficult to get across to the public is thinking what I call in a Bayesian sense, thinking in terms of probabilities and updating your priors and not saying getting these things in, in terms of black and white or yes and no, but in terms of what's most likely. At this point, based on the genetics of the virus, based on the outbreak, we still think it's most likely that it came out from the wet market. But again, like you said, the opacity of China, the fact that China lied about it early on and covered it up and still is very opaque about what went on early on is just uh, feeding is feeding this. I don't think it's necessarily a conspiracy theory to say that this this is this outbreak there. I, I think we have enough people who think that there's a probability that it happened, that it, it's far from that. And conspiracy theories, you know, they're not, conspiracy theories fill needs for people. And one of the things I think we fail to process 
is that the last three years have been incredibly traumatic. You know, we had a lockdown. We had restaurants closing. We had people losing their jobs. We had people sleeping in their cars so they could get tested. We lost a million Americans. We lost probably 10 million people worldwide. This was a major trauma that we hadn't seen the likes of in over a century. And in response to that, conspiracy theories flourish when you have a trauma. It's terrifying to think that a random pangolin in a random lab in a, in a random market in China caused this global pandemic and all this suffering and destruction. Whereas if you fit it into some kind of plan where it was a, a pandemic or you know, there was a conspiracy or they, they plan this out to depopulate or to give everyone 3G chips or whatever, that's comforting. It makes it feel like the world makes sense and so forth. So I think you have to separate two things, the conspiracy theories that flow from the scientific inquiry and the scientific inquiry itself, which is still going on. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel, this goes exactly to what I wanted to ask you about the comfort level. One of the reasons we're rehashing this is people just want to understand the un-understandable un here, right? That's a big part of this. One of the things, and I've talked to you about this almost every time you're on, is to really understand science, you almost have to not start with what does science do or the scientific method. You almost got to start with what does science not do and then work backwards, right? Because we seem to think like science is this answer to everything, and it's not. It's a method. How much of this debate, and I hate to frame it this way, but I just have to, does it really matter how it started? I'm content with it came out of China. We know China's not transparent. We know they've got all kinds of illicit aims. The regime does. We know they lie, cheat, and steal about all kinds of stuff. I'm content with that level of knowledge. Like, look, it came out of China. It may have been malicious. It may not, but it came out of China. I don't know that I really need to know more than that to make a valid observation on COVID ever since then, other than that. Past that, how much does it matter exactly how this started? And people are going to say, well, millions of people die. We got to know exactly how it started. Well, we already established we're never going to really know. How much of rehashing this again and again, like we seem to do about every six, seven months, is really being profitable here? I think in terms of policy, it would affect our work with China and our collaborations with them on virology. It would affect the safety protocols that are, are done in these kind of labs to make sure. I mean, one of the scary things that I heard during this debate was someone said lab leaks happen a lot. They just rarely break out because it's rare that you have a disease that gets that kind of traction. Usually they burn out pretty quickly or don't establish that sort of group of people you need to then have that outbreak. So uh, I think in terms of that kind of policy, it might be important, but we should be revisiting those policies anyway and thinking about what kind of collaborations we want to do with China, what kind of safeguards we need on this kind of research and so forth, regardless of where it came out. And regardless of where it came out, we do know a huge problem was the People's Republic's opacity on this, an unwillingness to admit that they had a problem on their hands. I mean, they were saying early on, this does not go transfer from human to human. And they knew that was a lie. They knew it was wrong. And they tried to suppress it and punish the scientists who tried to warn the world of what was going on. Whether it broke out from a lab or from the uh, wet market, that was the critical error, I think, early on of pretending that this was contained when it wasn't. Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. Part of the conversation on this, too, and again, we've talked about this multiple times over the last two, almost three years now. When it came to COVID, when it came to COVID policy, 
you know, scientists have their own language talking amongst themselves, and that language does not translate to the general public. And it really doesn't translate to government committees and things like that and regulators and things like this. When we start talking about origins, when we start talking about the research portion of this, you just mentioned there's a debate about how much researching of these super viruses, I'll put that in, you know, quotation air quotes, how much this research, you know, are we at a limit to where we should be doing some of this at all? Is there still good science involved here? That seems to be a conversation that got buried under a lot of this other stuff because people are going, well, wait, wait a minute. Why are we design? And I understand it's not settled, but let's just assume this was a lab created virus because there are lab created viruses that they used to study. That debate seems to got washed under here, though, but people are coming back to it like, why are we doing some of these things in the first place? Are these labs secure? Is the research? Are we researching just for the sake of researching without really having a tangible goal that affects the public here? Those are all valid questions, and that's something that we need to be talking about here as well, is it not? Um, absolutely. Uh, scientists tend to be cautious about this stuff, but you are playing uh, with very dangerous things. So I, I don't think one of the things that we discovered in uh, some of the document releases that we've had is that some of the companies and organizations that were doing this research were playing a bit fast and loose with documentation and so forth. and weren't being completely honest in some of the stuff they were reporting. And so that's something that we need to, to take a look at. We need more transparency about what is going on, not necessarily to the public, because some of this stuff is, you know, might be classified or, or copyrighted or whatever, but at least to the funding agencies, uh, they, they, you know, they don't have enough people to be looking into what's going on and make sure. And I think this is one instance where they do need to have a, a tighter supervision of what's being done. Michael Siegel joining us talking about accountability though people want this reckoning for COVID that they're not going to get you're not going to get it you're not going to get a reckoning you're not going to get those lives back you're not going to get a good solid answer on where it came from what do we do going forward I know you've talked about one of the signs of good science is science that doesn't mind being questions or science that can admit it's wrong where are you seeing the positives here because we've done a lot of bashing of science and scientists and governments and rightly so on this where are you seeing good stuff coming out of this? Where are you seeing that accountability? Because I'm seeing some of it, even in the press, where people are coming out and going, nope, we were wrong. We got that one wrong. Uh, we, we were wrong because of the information at the time. We didn't know we were wrong, but we did. I'm seeing some of that trickle out now in the scientific community, though. Where are you seeing some of those points of light so that we're also showing the positive and not just bashing all the scientists? Because it's not uniform. There's plenty of people that feel bad about how this got handled. I think that the one of the positive things to emerge from this is that we're getting less shy about letting the public know how the sausage is made, basically. That there is debate, there is argument, there are false leads, we follow the wrong ideas sometimes, and that we, we make decisions, and in this case where we had a public health emergency, based on incomplete information. And there's been a tendency, especially when you have an intersection of science with public policy, 
to try to not show our doubts, to not show what we're questioning, to not show what we're uncertain about. And I think that is breaking down a bit, that uh, we are showing a little more trust in the public to be discerning, to understand that this is the best answer we have now. And if we get more information, we will update you. You know, I think that that is going to be, we've come a long way from the early days where it was trust the science, you know, oh, you disbelieve the science and where we're trying to distinguish between where you have scientific gobbledygook like ivermectin and stuff like that and where you have legitimate scientific questions. Michael Siegel. All right. We talk about the scientific accountability of this. The public, I think, needs to have some accountability here, too. Because as bad as the government mishandled this, as bad as science kind of fumbled this, I don't think we, the public, handled this particularly well either. From the scientific point of view, because it was one-way traffic in the media, it's always the public bashing everybody else, right? Where does the science community look at the public and go, yeah, y'all kind of didn't handle this real well in a couple of areas. What areas was it? Because I know believe the science is a horrible thing that should never be uttered by a scientist ever again in the history of time because it kills your credibility. What's a legitimate criticism from the scientific field of how the general public handled this crisis? That is a tough question. Uh, it's it's really difficult to know because when you're talking about how the public responds to the to things, that's really complicated. It depends on people's biases. Unfortunately, politics is involved. I think probably the biggest criticism is, and this applies to science generally, is trying to wedge it into a political frame instead of a scientific one. That you know, seeing these sets of policies as liberal policies or these sets of policies as conservative policies. And we're, we're seeing that right now with this talk of the lab leak where there were a bunch of left-wing talk show hosts last night making fun of the Department of Energy for coming out <coughs> excuse me, with this report about the origins of the virus and saying, what do these physicists know? Well, the DOE has a division that looks into this. These are experts. They're just as much experts as the CDC. They disagree with them, but you know they have that. So I think there is a tendency when we hear news about the pandemic, masks work or masks don't work, the, vi the vaccines work or the vaccines don't work, to base our acceptance and belief of what we're hearing on how we perceive the politics that if we perceive it as being a left-wing talking point and we're conservatives, we think that they're they're wrong. And if we perceive it as being a right-wing talking point and we're liberals, we perceive that as being wrong instead of you know, saying, okay, maybe they're right about this. Maybe they have a point. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel. Okay, let's talk about a more current event that involves science that has people confused. Uh, East Palestine, Ohio. Here's where I start with this one, okay? When it comes to chemical leaks and environmental disasters, and we can put the rail stuff on top of it, but that's an added layer. Let's just stick to the chemicals themselves, because that's what people are really scared of here, right? Look, my, my uncle was an environmental engineer. I remember when I was a kid, we'd go out to these old steel sites around, you know, Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania, and these places have been closed down, some of them 40, 50, 60 years, and you're still testing the water and the soil samples and getting contaminants, that kind of stuff. It'll be a long time before you actually know the environmental impact of this. That's just how the science of these things work. Now, you actually looked at what the chemicals were involved here. There's a lot to unpack in this thing. How do people stop being afraid of this and just go, oh, chemical spill, big mushroom cloud, bad, which is all true. 
just visually, that's all true. How do they start parsing through the science, especially when they have a news media that doesn't cover the science angle of it other than usually a fear-mongering tactic or sometimes not giving people enough reason to be afraid? That happens as well. How do they get into a science story like this that's already been politicized and turned into a buzzword? It's really difficult because, you know, the, these are very specific chemicals with very specific effects. And the effects vary dramatically depending on how much you are exposed to and for how long. Um, the main one that people worry about is the vinyl chloride. That was, uh, there were about 500 tons of it in the wreck. And that was the one that produced the big uh, cloud of smoke when they decided to have a controlled burn rather than let it explode. And that produces phosgene, which is a poisonous gas, and um, hydrogen chloride, which is a precursor to uh, hydrochloric acid. Um, and this, this has effects on the environment. This has effects on the people there. I think there was a bit of hysteria and people saying, oh, it's the Ohio river. It feeds 10% of the entire country. It's been poisoned and so forth. We have chemicals going into rivers all the time. And so I think you need to take a step back and look at the bigger picture of what's going on. Um, it's easy to get hysterical when you see animals dying, but you have to realize that's not necessarily indicative of a Chernobyl type event. You know, small animals are very sensitive to chemicals. You're from West Virginia. In the coal mines, they used to have canaries. They had canaries because if you get to high carbon monoxide level, the canary will pass out and die before humans would. And so if the canary dies, get out of the mine before anything happens to you. We've heard stories of a lot of pets and small animals dying. They are way more sensitive to these chemicals than human beings are. We've seen, you know, they talked about all these fish in the rivers that are dead. Fish are extremely sensitive to chlorine. Uh, if any of you out there have fish in a tank, what is the first thing you do with the water? You put stuff in it to get rid of the chlorine so that uh, so the fish don't die. They're very sensitive to chlorine. So it's easy to look at fish dead in rivers and animals dead and this big pillar of smoke and think that something horrible is going on, which it kind of was, but that's why we have teams there. The EPA was there that night. The CDC, HHS are there. They're monitoring these uh, chemical levels and so forth. Even at low levels, they can cause irritation health problems. So I think they're going to have to be monitoring the people there for quite some time to see uh, to see how this works out. And I think uh, Norfolk Southern uh, is a company that can foot the bill for that. Yeah, and they already are. Michael Siegel, always appreciate the time, sir. Let folks know where they can follow you. Let them know about your great YouTube channel where you break down sci-fi stuff. Also, let them know where they can follow your writing and your tweeting and all that good stuff. Uh, mainly go to www.ordinarytimes.com. That's uh, the uh, gateway to everything. That's where I... Uh, post all my videos and all my articles and links to my Twitter feed and so forth. Uh, I have a video channel where I talk about science, but mostly science and movies. I just did a, a very long episode on contact and the uh, science of talking to aliens and radio astronomy and so forth. So uh, that's where you can find me. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel, we always appreciate you coming on and spreading your knowledge around like garlic butter on good bread, my friend. You do good work. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out 
Purr Podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.